ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Winning is an everyday mindset, and we're here to help. I'm Craig Robinson. Join me and Coach John Calipari for Ways to Win. We're kicking off during March Madness. Cal's Kentucky Wildcats are in the hunt. So throughout the tournament, I'm going to call up my friend to ask about his wins, losses, and especially what he's telling his players in the locker room. You got to win every day. Find the Ways to Win podcast anywhere you listen. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Tortoise. Hello, I'm Giles Wittell and we're recording this episode in front of an audience in the Tortoise newsroom. It's the week ending Friday the 15th of December. Welcome to the news meeting. Tensions are flaring and talks remain divided as many climate scientists and advocates are blasting a draft of a final agreement. The eyes to the right, 313. The nose to the left, 269. A victory for the Prime Minister and the majority bigger than he perhaps hoped. Yes, that was the president of a Turkish Super League team punching a referee in the face. A new global deal on climate change has been approved by almost 200 countries at the UN summit in Dubai. Hearing no objection, it is so decided. So joining me are Tortoise's political editor, Kat Nealon. Hello. Hello, Giles. Our climate editor, Jeevan Vasagar. Hi, Giles. And we're also joined by Rob Burley, who used to be editor of the BBC's live political programmes and the Andrew Marr Show. He's also the author of Why Is This Lying Bastard Lying to Me? A question we might be asking in various forms during this podcast. Hello, Rob. Hello. Thanks Thank for you. coming. Uh, we'll talk more about your book later. It is very funny. It includes the line, Theresa May is an extraordinary communicator and not in a good way. Um, but first... Let's find out what you all want to talk about with long stories short uh, in order to find out what should lead the news. So, Jeevan, in a single headline or sentence, what's your story? The end of fossil fuels. Thank you. Cat, uh, what's yours? It's the stupid economy. Rob, what is yours in a single line? It's uh, Rishi defeated. It's, you might think he won, but I think he's already lost. Okay. Those are the long stories short. Uh, Jeevan, tell us a bit more about yours. So uh, we've been talking about climate change for 30 years, the world. Finally, we've got an agreement that says we need to transition away from fossil fuels. Um, that's my pitch for why this is a new story. I think, you know, it's a bit of an odd thing, really, isn't it? It's taken us three decades to get to this point of sort of unmasking the kind of obvious culprit in the room. Um, you know, I, I, you, you don't have a feeling from these talks that our, our children and grandchildren are going to say, those guys, they were just brilliant. They were the masters of handling this crisis. They, they really had our backs on this. We've, we've sort of fumbled around this. What I think is really interesting about these talks in Dubai is that they really kind of laid bare what's at stake. So you've got, on the one hand, countries saying, look, and, and very many countries saying, oil and gas is the basis of our civilization, that they're what keeps the lights on all the time. And on the other hand, um, you know, countries saying, well, you know, but we're frying the planet. And that, that, that kind of fight has really sort of come to the fore in, in this conversation. Uh, and we've got a deal that I think is genuinely historic. And, and that's why I think it's a story. 
There was a little bit of drama, wasn't there? Because there was the first draft of the final text and nobody liked it except perhaps Saudi. And then very quick, and then, and then there was um, haggling, as is customary for day and a half. So the, the push from uh, European countries, from the US, and from the small island states who are the most vulnerable to climate change was to include the words phase out, the phase out of fossil fuels. That, that, that was the language they wanted in this deal. Uh, and then there was a draft text that came out um, early this week, uh, which was completely anodyne, sort of none of the crucial language really completely bland. Um, and then... Um, Kind of unexpectedly, another draft agreement came out today, and you normally expect COPs to overrun. So, uh, you know, very few people thought this will be the final agreement. This doesn't include the words phase out, so it's a bit weaker than that original hope, but it does include the words transition away. That's important. Um, and it does have a timeline. It does say we need to speed up this decade, we need to get to net zero by 2050. Um, so it is a compromise between the two sides, but it, it's stronger than many people hoped. Were you surprised? I mean, there was a sense when Sultan al-Jabba got behind the microphone that he wanted to say his piece, get it done, get the gavel down and move on uh, before anyone could throw any more spanners in the works. So, um, I mean, I think this is really interesting, isn't it? So you have, you know, you have the talks being hosted in an oil, oil and gas producing country. You have this guy who's head of Abu Dhabi's state oil company, uh, leading climate change negotiations, you know, it's a bit like kind of Kissinger winning the Nobel Peace Prize, isn't it? It's a bit of an oddity. But, you know, he, he's shown himself to be, uh, I think, someone who is clearly a deal maker. And, you know, he's known to be a forceful personality. He's known to be someone who really, really believes in renewables, but also understands that oil and gas built Dubai, built the Emirates. Uh, and he's actually, I think, pulled it off and brought the two sides together in a really remarkable way. I mean, you know, none of this, you know, okay, Big reality check here. None of this is binding on the countries. They all have to go off and do the work. You know, uh, emissions are still rising. So, you know, um, a few months ago, the chief executive of Exxon said, you know, this is a record year for oil and gas. Next year is another record year for oil and gas. He's right. You know, this isn't really going to move the markets. It isn't for now going to affect what oil and gas companies do. But it does send a big signal that governments, the governments are committed to this. And that, that's why they fight over it. That's why Saudi Arabia um, was pushing back so hard because they do know that ultimately this isn't quite the end, but it's the beginning of the end. Kat, um, the government, nothing binding. The governments are, tr uh, are committed, but they're committed to this transitioning away. Does that strike you as uh, specific, concrete in any way? Sounds like a leading question there, Giles. Um I, I, no, and I think that, you know, as we'll kind of get on to, particularly with Rob's pitch, um, until we deal with the sort of short-termism that we certainly have in our domestic politics and likely have in most other countries, because why wouldn't we? Um, I just, I, I can see 2050 feels sufficiently long enough away from the people who are our current leaders that they don't feel like they actually have to grapple with it now. And that's the problem, because it will be coming down the line. And we obviously mm. do need to be doing things now in order to meet that those targets then. But the political cost is being paid now and the political benefits will be reaped 20, 30 years from now. So what's the benefit to Rishi Sunak, for argument's sake, doing it now, other than perhaps some green credentials that he doesn't particularly want? Rob, uh, another year, another cop. If you were in one of your old jobs at mm. the BBC, um, would you stick this one at the top of the schedule? 
I think that, the truth is I think they're always a bit eat your greens, those stories. As stories? As stories, yeah, because they're just, you feel a bit, you're, I mean, I, you know, I think one's eyes glaze over a little bit. <laughs> because, just because, you know, you're used to these these targets and uh, aspirations and communiques and, in the end, you know, what's that worth? And, uh, you know, in a way I was struck by it. It's a bit like that Spinal Tap joke about you should have seen that what they wanted to put on the album cover before you're offended by the one they did. Because, uh, you know, the the the, the, the pre- previous draft was, you know, pretty horrendous. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I think in a way, not that I, not not in, not in to minimise, but in terms of whether you would think it would be a thing that would be uh, uh, kind of a, a grabby for the audience. I think I might, I might not. Right, well... Um we are going to go to a couple of people in the audience just briefly. Um, do please make sure you have the microphone before you speak. Climate change has kind of been divulged into individuality. We're expected as members of the public to recycle or to drive greener cars or to do this. But as we know, it's corporations that are continuing, like Coca-Cola, to produce mass amounts of plastic day in, day out. And until that changes, until we literally get international law that can help control corporations, we'll agreements like COP ever actually make a difference. Um, actually, just on the on the green vehicles thing, um, uh, just to kind of show you the impact of some of the short-term decisions that are made, since Rishi Sunak went back on some of the net zero um, targets, the more immediate ones, there, there has been a drop-off in electric vehicle purchasing. So you can actually see the sort of, you know, real-world cause and effect. And I appreciate that, you know, a few thousand people buying a, a sort of petrol car instead of a, an electric car doesn't feel like it's going to make a huge difference to the sort of big global issues that we have. But it's that incremental stuff, which I think that our, our short-termism kind of really... Just to respond to that, though, isn't there actual statistics that show that green cars like Tesla actually take something like 10 years of driving them to equal a 4x4 because we are mining it from African countries. We are dispersing our environmental impact as we do with clothing as we do with lots of things to other countries and therefore they might be environmentally friendly for a very short period of time once they become that or combine compare one statistic to another but when you actually compare the full impact of where those parts are mined from and what they are actually equivalent to they're not actually an achievement they're a, they're a falsity do you want to respond quickly? Can I just ask your name? Melanie. Uh, Melanie, I completely agree with what you're saying about um, individual responsibility. It's not about individual responsibility. It's all about changing systems. It's all about the signals the government send, what businesses do. I think the main thing that EVs do is take oil demand out of the system. And actually, that's that, I think, is, is, is a really, really critical function, reducing emissions from road transport. Um, but I think the way... I think the thing that's going to make a really, really big difference is actually electrifying things that aren't four-wheeled cars driven in the West. It's actually electrifying vans. It's electrifying tuk-tuks in Asia, basically, and getting those off diesel and off, off really, really highly polluting um, uh, fossil fuels, basically. So that, 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 I think, is like the key role that EVs are going to play. I, I mean, I think there is, a, there is a debate to be had about kind of like the cost of critical minerals. But I, I think straightforwardly, you know, there are trade-offs in everything, but EVs are on, on balance a good thing. Right, Rob, let's move on to your story. Tell us uh, more about what it is and why you think it should lead the news. I think there's, there's a moment to consider the Sunak premiership at this point and to wonder whether he has squandered what was actually, okay, had some, a difficult card to some extent, but also an opportunity that he, that he sort of passed up. Because I, 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 you mentioned the book um, and uh, I, I'm update, I've just been updating, I had to finish the last up, bit of the update last night while they were voting. So it's going to be out of date immediately and look ridiculous. Um, but <laughs> uh, never mind that. Um, but um, essentially it, it covers the point, it starts in 2022 when he became 
prime minister up till today, this, this updated chapter. And the point about it is that I think there's a quite there was actually quite a bit of hope, you know, principally amongst the kind of centrist dad kind of um, massive that um, uh, that uh, that we might be, have a return to kind of the norms under Sunak and that he might he might be a leader of a different quality to the ones that had come before because God knows we needed some improvement on those people. Um, and I think actually for some time, almost from the beginning, thinking, looking back, it's been a big disappointment. Um, from the beginning, he could have repudiated Liz Truss and all her works and, uh, and her economic perspective. Instead, he chose to just slightly say there had been a few mistakes. It was his optimum moment of power. He could have used that to sort of define what's acceptable and what's going to happen going forward. But instead, he just ducked it. And there have been numerous examples down down the, the months of sort of other missteps. So I think where we are now is, is somebody who's, again, I'm not talking about policy. I'm talking about the way he's handled himself and the way he's communicated. He's left himself sort of increasingly at risk of being overthrown or just being annihilated. Rob, he had Jeremy Hunt as his chancellor, and I do remember Jeremy Hunt as chancellor um, ticking off every key aspect of the trust slash quasi-budget and reversing them. So that sure. that was a distancing ploy, wasn't well, there's it? One thing, there's one thing to, dis- to, in reality, do the distance, the, you know, distance yourself by changing the policy. I'm saying in political and com- communication terms, to say... That was, I'm sorry, on behalf of the Conservative Party and the government and and all involved that this happened and that we made that mistake and that we we won't make that mistake. You can trust us again. I mean, he did did say that there would be, I think what his words were in Downing Street, integrity, professionalism and accountability would be what would be the mark of the next next period. And it's arguable whether we we had that or not. But actually, to mention Jeremy Hunt, I mentioned this in the the book that's already out. Um, He, see... He was interviewed by Beth Rigby. I was working with Beth on, on an interview with Jeremy Hunt around the time of the, the, the first, um, whatever, whatever it was, an autumn statement or what a budget it was back in, in the autumn of 2022. And that was the point which we had a figure from the OBR about how much Brexit would negatively affect the economy. Um, and he, he he demonstrated the same thing I'm talking about that we've seen with, with Sunak, which is he sort of suggested, well, I, you know, I was never really worried about Brexit being a bad thing economically. So it literally takes you t- two minutes to find it, um, tweets from him from the uh, from the referendum saying that it was going to lead to lots of problems. He wouldn't even acknowledge the truth of that. He would take the OBR bits that he liked and, and, and reject the ones that he didn't like. So there was a sort of, all I'm saying is that if, if it was about a renewal in any way of integrity, professionalism and accountability in terms of the way people were straightforward with people and, uh, about what they were about, I think they haven't actually, that hasn't lived up to that at all. And Jeremy was doing that at that point, which is a disappointment because I thought he wasn't, that sort of guy, but he seems to have been as well. So with your news hat on, yes. what's your top line here? Are you making the same argument about Rwanda that it's essentially a, a comms failure and a disappointment in terms of showing Sunak's talents or lack thereof as a politician? I'm saying, I'm saying now is the moment after the spectacle where we've managed to reinstate Marc Francois as the, as the, um, the, the arbiter of our, uh, our policy. Which is quite an achievement um, to, to, to and build cash, you know, to reach that point. Then it's an appropriate moment to look back at the the ways in which Rishi Sunak's been a big disappointment on the front. I mentioned it may be it may be more of an op-ed. I don't know, but it's a it's it's still no no. I think I think it is, good. and I think I think Rwanda is the sort of key uh, sort of prism for, yeah, for, sure. it, for it to be viewed through because um, he could have he could have had a much easier day of it if he had been more political and how would he have done that so the 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 whips have uh chalked up weeks of of problems they are not 
respected by Conservative MPs and neither is Rishi. And so that leads to a lack of discipline. On the day of the Rwanda vote, um, what you had was uh, people who had already told their whip that they were going to be loyal being hauled in for a dressing down by the chief whip entirely unnecessarily um causing you know some damage uh, some bad blood which will be you know kept remembered for future votes that the sort of damage that's been done behind closed doors suggests that and this is to the sort of problem about why i think rishi defeated is is kind of the right approach because we look we don't know january may come and the rebels may flop again and and the rwanda bill goes through and um the fl- first flights uh take off in march and you know rishi sunak can point to it and say you know there you go i i did what i said but i was talking to some people this morning who did not abstain yesterday but said the rebels were reaching out um and they haven't made up their mind yet. Okay, so uh, quite a lot about political management, mismanagement from both of you. What about the sort of Python-esque parody of a policy that is that is the Rwanda plan? Um, what do you make, either of you or Jeevan, of the of the argument that for us to be talking about it is is just for us all to be falling into a sort of fetid conservative trap where we're talking about a preposterous plan yes <laughs> well, if that wasn't a- because it's the plan i mean you know he's made it okay he, he's done this i mean he's made but, it but talking about opportunities taken and not taken on on sunak's part was mm. there not an opportunity for him to stand up and say look i get it immigration oh, yeah. is a, a concern especially um, uh, for my base and 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 you know for um lots of different demographics but Let's be honest about this. This is unworkable. It was misconceived from the start. Let's try doing something grown up. But he, did, he didn't need to obviously ha- pursue the policy because it wasn't his, but mm-hmm. he chose to. And this is what I'm saying about the missteps, which when they, add, when they only add them up are pretty significant. Thank you very much for your story, Rob. Now we take a beat. And when we come back, we'll hear what Kat thinks should lead the news. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Kat, what's yours? So mine is uh, that while all of Westminster, including myself, have been sort of obsessing over the Rwanda vote, watching Graham Stewart being flown back from Dubai just to add one, the sum total of one vote to the to the government side. Um, actually, what's been going on in the economy is far more serious, potentially damaging to the conservative brand, not just for this election, but perhaps for the next two or three on 
Wednesday, the ONS announced that the UK's GDP had shrunk by 0.3% in October. Um, all three major sectors are affected. Manufacturing um, is down, services are down, construction industry is down. Um, the Bank of England hasn't yet forecast a recession, but um, w w we know uh, from having spoken to Andy Haldane, who who did one of the news meetings previously, that he thinks a recession is on the cards. Um, and it's stuff like this that makes it more likely. The idea that we could be in an election year when there is a recession should be keeping Conservative MPs up at night, but instead they are obsessing over whether they might be able to stop some votes by getting one flight off to Rwanda. Um, and I think the reason why this is potentially a sort of uh, generational problem for, for the Conservatives, not just a single um, election, is because it basically stems back to the 2008 crash. And we've got wage stagnation, I found a really interesting um, statistic, uh, which I don't have the citation for, I'm afraid. So let's just say sources. The average total pay per week in May 2023 in 2015 prices is £497 a week because of the level of stagnation. So you could just see how bad it is for people and that has the translation in that it's much more difficult for people to get onto the housing ladder um, which again is correlated with voting conservatives so if they think that you know they'll kind of have a have a one term in opposition and then come bouncing back but they've got structural uh, voters turning against them structural issues affecting the the, the, the their chances of having um people come back to, to support them in future um they're 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 deluding themselves it's just not happening um and of course rishi sunak did know that this was a problem he made growing the economy one of his five pledges um it looks very likely that he won't hit that he has as he, as he keeps telling us he has hit the halve inflation target but and this is again to rob's point no one understands what that means i mean obviously oh, we kind of surely do we, we understand on a rational level halving inflation is a good thing but the vast majority of people will expect halving inflation to mean things are getting cheaper but actually it just means things are getting more expensive less quickly so he rishi sunak has been telling people we we're all going to be feeling better off next year we're not all going to be feeling better off next year because prices are still going up. Uh, Rob, is this an eyes glaze over story no, or no. is it serious? No, it's serious. Or both? No, it's no. I think obviously it's serious. I mean, again, it's, uh, yeah, we're concerning ourselves with the Rwanda thing when we should be thinking about this. But I think, I guess, well, two things I want to say. One is that I, I suppose, I haven't looked at the polling, but I imagine that this is actually the issue that, that most people care about, even if people are talking about Rwanda the whole time. Second is, when do we judge this? When do we judge these pledges? Because I think he's got well, five the of them. start of the year. So technically, the right. clock should stop on the 31st of December at midnight. All right. Okay, so there'll be a big moment of judgment then. No, I think it's interesting. I think we have to, and it would be good for people, to, journalists, to make sure that those those pledges are, because God knows he mentioned them enough times, Yeah. you know, that we should be able to assess whether they've actually amounted to anything. But something, something, Half the economy. Something. Yeah. Half the economy. Yeah. Grow the boats. Jeevan, you're a, a thoughtful, big-picture person, but I'm going to ask you just to be a hard-nosed news editor for three <laughs> seconds. 
Um, how do you um, condense this big subject into a headline and uh, does it work for you? Well, I think the two stories are related, aren't they? So if you think about um, the dysfunctional kingdom that Kat describes, I mean, I think for me, the core of it, the, things, the two things that I think are most important are the housing crisis and the failure to build clean energy. And they're both related by the fact that you've got to annoy Tory voters to do them both, mm. right? And that's why they're not happening. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then you think, what do they reach for? And they reach for the politics of cruelty, basically. So they sort of hammer the Rwanda button. And, you know, uh, we're aware this week that um, it seems like an asylum seeker has taken his own life yes. uh, on the Bibby Stockholm boat. So, so these things all feel kind of interconnected to me. Mm. I, I think it is a bit of a challenge as an editor or a journalist to sort of to try and tell sort of GDP figures, you know, an ONS story in a way that is really tangible. I think it's a really important economic story. It's it's just a hard one to make kind of really concrete. Uh, you know, and, you know, that's why I think kind of like the Rwanda story, it's an easier story to tell because you've got the Westminster battle. But I think you've got to have both. You've got to have a sense of like, this is the bigger picture here. Okay, well, I'm going to ask each of you to tell me which story you think should lead the news and you cannot choose your own. Jeevan, you want to go first? Um, if I was editing a news bulletin, I think it would have to be Rwanda because it's it's the more straightforward news. Can story. I just say, uh, Jeevan, that we're 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 talking about this as Rwanda as a one worder, but that's not the story Rob was pitching in it's the not. end. It 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 was much more a story about uh, Sunak's mismanagement of, of politics, wasn't it? Generally, so uh, I think I think I've just raised the bar there for you. <laughs> you're you're going to stick with that? Okay. Um, I will stick. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, Rob, you cannot choose your own. So it's uh, um, COP or the economy? Uh, the economy. Before you decide, can I just show, show you a picture of a polar bear? <laughs> is, it a, is it a baby bear? <laughs> it is. <laughs> tempting, but I'm going to go with the economy. It's funny that you almost always see adult polar bears in those sad <laughs> yeah. pictures, don't you? Because they have to be big enough to swim by themselves to a lonely iceberg. <gasps> Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, sorry. Which one did you pick? I went with the economy. You went with the UK economy. Cat. I didn't. The bribes didn't work, did they, Giles? The promise. You don't of know bribes. yet. Um, I'm going to go with uh, Rishi um, and how he's uh, played a bad hand badly. I think. Mm. Good okay. choice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not just because political journalists sort of gang up against the climate ones <laughs> no not at all <laughs> it's really funny how that's worked out i'm going to disagree with you all okay so here's 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 what i think cat I, I see what you were doing there you were uh, taking rob's story and raising him if i can mangle my poker terminology and saying Rob, you dealt with the the trivial British political story. I'm showing you the serious one, and I get that. It's I would very, never be so Machiavellian. It, it, it's very clever of you. It is it is a big story. I'm sure you're right that over the course of next year, it'll it'll pan out that way. I think the source for one of your stats was mm. either the gigantic Resolution Foundation report, um, ending stagnation, or the Centre for Social Justice's Two Nations. They cover similar territory. They're both book length. And um, a lot of people uh, have done a lot of measuring of the economy and found it on most metrics in a pretty parlous state. Um, But I'm not falling for it. Um, I am sort of falling for the Rishi story in the same way that LA traffic reporters used to talk about looky-loos. If you spend any time in LA, which I did in a past life, and you listen to the, the 
um, traffic and news together um, on the radio, they will tell you where the uh, tra traffic jams are, and the worst ones are where there's a car crash and everyone slows down to look at it, and they uh, rubbernecking or looky-loose or whatever. And there's an, uh, a sense of that to me in what's going on with uh, Rishi's uh, um, sort of fiddling away at his own scab, which is called Rwanda right now. And, and I'm interested, Rob, I've learned a lot actually about his failure to, to seize the moment when he became prime minister to distinguish himself. And, and yeah, when you think about it, he's, he's shown a remarkable lack of political courage in, in making those, um, uh, in defining himself, I Including think. Including climate policy. Yeah, it's true. Spectacularly. Anyway, uh, but I'm afraid uh, Rwanda is in at number two. Um, the uh, news is going to be led by Jeevan Story and COP, not just because uh, the future of the planet uh, depends on it, uh, but because it is the first use of language on oil and gas in a COP final text. Um, the governments of the Gulf states and Saudi have put their signatures to this language, whatever happens next. And I think um, one thing that we didn't discuss much, but which is true nonetheless, which makes it a grabbier story than I think you were suggesting, Rob, is the sheer spectacle of the petro states coming to COP, their jets on the tarmac, the... Um, I think, I think in a visual sense, if not a sort of an argumentative sense, this was a reality check. Um, they, they haven't really been in the room in past COPs. They've complained about it a lot. And between COPs, every year, they've showed us, you know what, we have the whip hand, especially if Putin's going to go and declare war and the price is going to shoot up. I mean, just look, look at the trillions. It's actually one and a half trillion extra dollars that have flown into the coffers of family offices which hold big uh, stakes in, in legacy energy companies, according to Bloomberg this week. So uh, hot air, as one of our colleagues uh, complained this morning very huffily, yes, uh, but very hot and a lot of it. And so COP leads the news, as far as I'm concerned. Boo. Bro <laughs> it's broccoli time. <laughs> 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 broccoli time. No, Rob, I think that I'm is joking. an abdication of your responsibility Sorry. as a very serious journalist. Sorry. Sorry. Um, <laughs> one, th one other thing I should have said, by the way, which, which confirmed me in my view that COP would lead the news is the immense interest from the audience. Thank you very much. You can give yourselves a round of applause. Um, uh, but in any case, Remember that you can always email us about the stories you think we've missed. Just send your thoughts to newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. Um, but before we run out of time, I do want to ask you a little bit about your book, Rob. You, I mean, it's basically a book about the long-form TV, political TV interview uh, as a way of holding politicians to account. But you also tell a lot of the sort of big political stories of the, of the age through it. And you start by saying that you, as a younger person, mm. still look very young, okay. um, were fascinated uh, by the challenge of decoding the language of politics. Why do politicians have to talk in code? Damn it. Ooh, that's a very good question. I mean, it's a different code. I think it was a different code to what I was referring to then to the code we have now. And the code that I was talking about then was, I don't know, I'm sure there aren't many people in the room who remember when we had three channels um, and then four. Wow. 
but uh, when we had three only, um, it, I, I was going to say, but I didn't want. Uh, but um, but uh, uh, I remember I was on a wet sort of November Sunday. I wouldn't have any choice but to put at times to put ITV on, for example, and watch Weekend World, which was the the, the interview show, then the long interview show, then which was fronted by Brian Walden, and used to bring out a sort of a procession of imp- impressive big beasts that were dominating politics then, from Mrs. Thatcher a lot of the time. Incredible interviews with Mrs. Thatcher, through to you know, Kinnock, and then all the people in between. Um, and so that was the decoding at that point was to try and understand what the hell was going on because I couldn't understand what they were talking about. Mm. But I had, you know, there's nothing else to do. <laughs> so it was about trying to work out what that was and then becoming... Also, it was, it was alluring because it was obviously important and, uh, you know, significant. And the way that Walden would present it was made, made you feel that way. He'd always say, what you've said there is, it's very important what you just said. He said, even right. actually looking back often, that was just to encourage the, interview, the interviewee to actually say some more stuff. But it made you feel like it was something important. So that was the decoding of that. And the, sorry, subsequently, I think the decoding now is a different thing, which is they just don't try and communicate with us. They're in the business of not talking to us in a real way, in a, in a grown-up manner. Or, as you put it in the title, lying. Well, uh, yeah. Um, well, who's, who's the best or biggest liar in politics right now? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that... that um, well, Can I... I, mean, I, don't, I, I think the trouble is, in a way, it sounds anti-Tory on the basis that we've had them for so long in power, so mm-hmm. they've tended to do it. Um, but I do think, I think, you know, the, the Labour you know, at different points. I mean, one of them, you mentioned thing about the health service. They like, this is an example of Labour. They like talking about the health service being in real trouble and they're going to and effectively communicate to the public they're going to rescue the, the health service. It's on its face, not even its knees. Yeah, it's, yeah, the pledges of money from the Labour Party, because they obviously don't want to commit any money, mm-hmm. is so tiny that in reality, to do anything transformative, it, just, it wouldn't happen. It will not happen unless there is investment alongside reform if reform comes comes along so that's not particularly honest with the electorate about what's going to happen and we talk about we talk about the conservatives you know at the conference they were literally making up policies that didn't exist to 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 attack and the prime minister when he did the um the prior to that the net zero thing talked about how he's going to stop all this compulsory car sharing i mean there is no compulsory car sharing you know, or, or the recycling, the, the seven recycling bids. These, these are just literally made up things that, that he's willing to say in public in Downing Street in that instance to, for political gain. I mean, it, it's a disinformation for, for political gain, which the government's own disinformation unit marks out as a problem that needs to be tackled. So I don't know if they'll ever be referred to their own body for that. But, you know, it's, it's just in the blood of, of, of politics now that people... I'm not saying it was perfect back then, but Mrs Thatcher's attitude was, I've, you know, I'm going to teach the country why I'm right... And I'm going to go on television and tell them what I think. And, and that has to be one. Whereas Liz Truss, who sort of did the kind of cosplay Mrs. Thatcher thing, dressing up in the right outfits, resisted doing any interviews that were any, of any length or consequence because she didn't want to really sell the idea. And she had an idea. It was a big idea. It crashed and burned. It might not have done, I guess, if she told the country, look, this is going to be difficult, but here's what I believe in and why. Instead, she just tried to do the bare minimum uh, and got through the, the hustings and that was it. Who are they speaking to is a really interesting thread here, isn't it? Like your idea that they've gone from sort of speaking to the whole country to maybe addressing this sort of slightly cranky tribe in their own language. Yeah. It doesn't matter who else is listening or not listening. Yeah, the possible. ambition is to not commit any headlines. That's that's yeah. the salt, that's the, is, the kind of main priority of, of any minister doing it. Doing but, but I think the calculation there, if you can get people worked up about these things, even though they don't actually exist, yeah. um, then maybe then your party or not, then, then maybe they'll think about that and not about the, the, the to go back to the GDP story. 
the, the problems they're having. But by the way, it, it's, there's a slight danger this might, might makes the book sound really boring and worthy. It also features stories about Sting's cheekbones, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and lots of other sort of uh, fun stuff. So it's just, it's not designed to be a sort of like, wet, I know we're thinking in and so on, something that can be a tortoise, but um, uh, the, I think the... the um, <laughs> I think I'd like to just, just stress that... Um, it is a fun book. It's, I, it, it, they're a laugh. It okay? is fun. It might, on the face of it, it sounds not funny. No, it's brilliant. I love it. And also, I would just say that anyone that has young-ish children, but the ones that can read, um, don't leave it lying around, because mm. I did. And my seven-year-old was shocked that mummy was reading such a terrible book. Yes. Sorry about that. Well, my <laughs> nine-year-old just thinks that he can just say bastard now as many times as he likes <laughs> with complete impunity, which, which is true. Well, I think this is how language evolves. Rob, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Kat and Jeevan, thank you too. Thank you. That's it. Thank you, Charles. You're welcome. <laughs> That's it for this episode of the News Meeting. James Harding will be back on Monday. For now, goodbye. Tortoise. 